Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and I'm really excited about speaking with our guest today, as yesterday was uh, Charity Day and giving back. It started the season yesterday, and for those that are unfamiliar with that, it yesterday was more – it started in 2012 where – you were, if you're blessed and you like how your life's been given or how your life's been going, then why not give back a little of, to show your appreciation? So it's grown in its entirety. I mean, there's a lot of charity going on. And we're speaking with the guest today of H2 Open Doors. It's a charity that works a little bit different. I'm going to let John talk a little bit more about it. But let me read a little bit of his bio because I don't want to miss any part. So uh, there are a lot of people, especially right now, they like to donate to charity, but something's holding you back. So maybe you don't know where your money's really going or exactly how it's going to help those in need. So that's why we have John on today. He's the creator of H2O Open Doors, a charity that works in a different way. So John goes on to say, it's time to start using our charitable gifts in a way that empowers the poorest among us to profit which promotes self-reliance and actually creates a system where the recipients can make money instead of take money. So he's going to talk about how he's disrupting the charity model and turning the idea of giving on its head. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome the author of Long Walk on a Dry Road, The Education of a Water Warrior, John Kaufman, to the podcast. Welcome, John. Well, thank you, Hamza. It's a pleasure to... uh talk with you and your audience and uh, about about something that I think are ideas worth spreading, as they say in TED world. Absolutely, absolutely. And just before the call, we were talking about how uh, Giving Tuesday was just yesterday. And so we are in the middle of holiday donations where a lot of people donate to charities. And I think what your charity speaks volumes as to what you guys have been doing. I think you're in year eight. And you have an awesome story. So uh, before going into your background, I'd like to talk a little bit about H2 Open Doors, and then we can backtrack a little bit. Sure. Well, I, 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 um, I found myself thrust into uh, taking a fork in the road in my life about 11 years ago. My sister uh, was suffering from ovarian cancer, and she was a good fighter for about four years. And in between her chemo treatments, you know, we would go on these um, adventures. Um, and uh, a lot of times they were cruises. And we were on this one cruise, and I, and I knew this was to be probably our last adventure together because she was getting very frail. But we were on uh, Royal Caribbean, and one of the port stops was a place called Labity. Have you ever heard of that, Labity? I, I have not. Well, I didn't know about it either, but it's actually in Haiti. But, you know, no coincidence in their brochure, they don't say we're going to stop at 80, right? Mm-hmm, right. So we're at this, at this port of call called Labadee, which is actually owned by the cruise lines. And they have zip lines and they have – and there's 3,000 people on the boat. And we get off onto these little tenders and then dock at Labadee and get off 3,000 people. And there's marimba bands and there's – um, you know, just endless food uh, buffets and, and uh, just, just uh, zip lines, everything you can imagine. And you spend the day there looking out on the horizon at the, at the big liberty of the seas out there bobbing in the, in the ocean. 
And then when we're all done, we, uh, we line up to get back on the tenders to go back to the ship. And my sister and I look back as we're going back towards the ship and we look behind us from whence we came or where we came or whatever the heck the word is. And we see probably a thousand Haitians coming through the jungled mountains into the festival grounds where we just were. A lot of them with babies on their, on their backs and they're going through the garbage, picking up corn cobs, half eaten and chicken wings, partly eaten and, and they're, they're having a meal in the garbage cans, probably a thousand of them. And mm. we, we both start crying. You know, we don't, like, we've never seen anything quite like this, especially you know, in juxtaposition of us going back to this luxury you know, boat. And I made a promise to her at that point because I knew I was losing her, which was that you know, I'm going to do something about this. And I didn't know what, but it took me about four years to figure out what it was. And I decided that the lane that I was going to stay in was water, that water had this potential of providing at the same time, something that you must have in order to live. You can't go for more than four days and stay alive without water. Um, But also uh, it's a commodity that everybody needs and it provides an opportunity for the poor to start enterprises in selling uh, that water in which we give the technology for them to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, that actually kind of hurts my heart a little bit because uh, after undergrad, I actually lived in Dominican Republic. And so yeah. we we would sometimes, if we were allowed, go over to Haiti, you know, it's right next door. But uh, yeah. I could, at that time, you know, at such a young age, fresh out of school, you know, you, you want to conquer the world. And I can understand maybe a man going through hard times, but seeing the women and children going through that, I can only imagine what you and your sister had witnessed, you know, when you're, when you're leaving. And in essence, it sounds like, um, like they were exploiting the land, like here's a nice drop-off and then have a nice day. Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of the um... – I guess there's there's certain points where everybody kind of meet, meets their maker in a certain way and, you know, kind of that wake-up call. Uh, and that was it for me. I mean, that it really shook me to my core. And as I said, it took me about four years. I mean, she passed away about eight months after that particular trip. And so she never got a sense of what direction I was going in, except that I made this promise to her, and she always trusted that I would follow through. And I wanted to make her proud, but unfortunately, you know, she passed before I centered in on what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And I started, I own a, a Silicon Valley marketing company, and, uh, but my real passion started to become this particular avenue. And I decided to become a, a contributor, and I was a pretty substantial contributor to the forerunner of water.org. You know, now it's run by Matt Damon and Gary Wright. But before that, it was called Water Partners. And I, and I had become a very large contributor to them and thinking that that's, that's what I could do. You know, I could support some of the work they're doing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I found with most water NGOs, well, pretty much all water NGOs, everyone that you've ever heard of, um, is that the go-to way that they're handling this is they put a water point someplace you know, usually a hand pump, and it would be a shallow well, 
And um, in the literature with Water Partners, you know, I had just made this large contribution, and because I also own a marketing company, I'm looking at the, the literature, right? And, mm-hmm. and I asked for a, for a meeting of the board of directors, and three people showed up. And I said, look, you're saying the wrong thing. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you're saying that last year we put 1,000 wells in Kenya, and this year we're going to put 1,000 wells in Ghana, so send us money. And they said, well, mm-hmm. yeah, what's wrong with that? I said, well, what you should be saying is this year we put 1,000 wells in Kenya, and next year we're going to go back and fix the 40 to 60% that are inoperable. Mm-hmm. Because 40, 40 to 60% of pumps and wells in the world are inoperable at any given time for a variety of reasons. And their answer to me was, well, John will never be able to raise money that way. And I said, then give me my money back. And they said, well, we can't do that because we're already committed to Ghana. So I said, well, I've got to rethink this. You know, I've got to do this a different way. And Mm -hmm. so I decided that instead of starting my own 501c3, which seemed like a really huge undertaking, I decided to join Rotary International. And um, I was recruited by a guy who wanted me to join his local Rotary Club here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I started to think that, you know, Rotary International's big push, at least even till today, is uh, eradicating polio, along with Mm -hmm. the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But the second thing, like after that's done, it's going to be water. And and they're, they're active in the water space. I mean, they've been active in the water space. But what I found was an opportunity to do this kind of work that I want to do with an infrastructure that already exists. There's 35,000 clubs in more countries than the UN. And so wherever mm-hmm. I'd want to put in a, a system or, you know, put in a solution, I've got like a million members of Rotary in these 35,000 clubs that could be my oversight um, when I leave. And so I started thinking about, well, let me start a project within Rotary and see how far that will get me. And then that is called, a, I called it H2 Open Doors which is kind of a funny mashup, H2O mm-hmm. meaning the water technology that I employ, and then open doors meaning that that technology is robust enough that it could actually put a village into the business of selling water and becoming self-reliant. Right. So are you saying, John, that as a marketing company that you're used to working with systems? Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I, 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 yeah. I'm also a systems engineer, so, you know, in the Silicon Valley, you know, we've, we've all become pretty good at cobbling together solutions, you know, like, you know, you know the phrase software as a service, SaaS? Yes, yes. You know, um, it used to be the days when if you wanted to develop an online solution of some sort, an app or, a, or you know, some sort of online solution, you'd start from scratch. You'd hire a bunch of programmers, either from India or Thailand or wherever, and you'd mm-hmm. create you know, uh, from scratch, a solution. And then software as a solution became almost cookie cutters. You know, there's, there's like, so, there's hundreds and hundreds of them, thousands of them that you can reconfigure to, to whatever you want to do. So as a systems integrator, I've, I've learned to use what's out there already that's well packaged and well formatted. And then, you know, solve whatever problem I need to do for my customers in the marketing business without reinventing the wheel, but with right. its own special secret sauce. 
Well, without divulging the secret sauce, and I promise we're going to go back to H2 Open Doors for sure, but I have to put on my uh, marketing hat as well. So I, I have to ask you, because uh, I'm sure you're, you're watching everything that's going on with uh, Elon Musk, and whenever there's an update with your Tesla, then it can be updated remotely. And so yep. ultimately, are we looking at a, uh, a SaaS type of operation that can be controlled with water globally. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I have a Tesla X, which I love, absolutely love it. And and I'm and I'm pretty much leaning towards that stupid pickup truck. What did what did you think about that? <laughs> that was that was that's pretty intriguing to tell you the truth. Oh, well, uh, let me ask you. Wait, we have to stay there for one second, John. Just humor me for one second because he was he he. We're talking about um, inspiration here, and so yeah. he was inspired, I believe, by Mad Max or uh, you know some futuristic movie. I believe it was Mad Max. No, it had just come out. Um, they remade it. It was uh, Running Man, Renegade Man. Um, yeah. It's not a. It's a futuristic movie. But anyway. The reason why they have those futuristic movies and those type of cars is because there's the haves and the have-have-nots, right? And so with H2 Open Doors, you're kind of making people reliant and self-sufficient, so you may not actually need that truck. Yeah, that's probably true, you know? It's (laughs) it's so fascinating, though, you know, with with visionaries. You know, when they first come out with something, it's so shocking and so easily dismissed and, oh, God, yeah. that's, a, that's ridiculous and so on. And then you, you slowly start to adapt to that visionary's way of thinking and, and it starts to make sense after a while. And pretty soon we're all driving, you know, we'll be all driving cars that are folded as opposed mm-hmm. to uh, cold rolled steel. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's just right. the looks of it. That's the issue. But he's built a, this incredible infrastructure and, yes, he is an inspiration to me because, um, you know, w- w- what I did about mm, when I first started it about eight years, I spent a full year vetting the technology that I need because I had about 10 different pick list requirements. I mean, first of all, I didn't want to just stick a straw into the earth and then be done with it. I wanted mm. to focus in on purification because I figured – you know, yeah, there's there's water and aquifers in certain places, but it's very expensive to to drill deep enough so that you have 365 days of water for 10, 20 years, you know, into the future. Um, but there's lakes, there's rivers, there's ponds, there's there's a lot of fresh water that's just contaminated. I I I pretty much was sure that there's an abundant supply of contaminated water on earth. <laughs> that's, that's something that I was pretty sure of. Um, and then um, as, as I started to put in, like we're at 30, 30 systems installed so far in 11 countries, but as we started to work in places like Africa, it's pretty much guaranteed that you got to drill. There's no way around it. You got to drill. So, so I needed to drill deep enough so that I could get an adequate supply. And I'll talk about that a little bit later when I talk mm-hmm. about um, some of the more recent projects that we've been doing. But, but, I, but I definitely wanted to have a purification um, regime that would produce enough daily water that 10,000 people 
could get at least a half a gallon or two liters of fresh, safe drinking water of the quality of Dasani water or Aquafina water, of that quality, that they could create it from their own source. Um, so I was looking for, for equipment and the technology that could do that. And um, I needed it to scale that much because I wanted the village to be able to take care of their needs or the school to be able to make sure that the kids got you know, water. But I also wanted surplus water to be available for their sale so that they could sell and create revenue for their own essential social services. So that was one thing. I needed robust um, equipment. I needed the equipment also to not be what the typical purification systems are, which is chlorine or, um, or a generator operated. Uh, in other words, I needed a system that didn't require uh, electricity because in a lot of places I want to go, there's inadequate electricity. Uh, fuel, because that's expensive and it's also you know, very difficult to bring fuel in to operate generators and, and, and equipment. And then I didn't want chemicals. So that led me to needing, I needed membranes. Now what membranes are, are um, it's about a 25-year-old technology, and it's used primarily at um, some of the largest water treatment plants at municipalities around the world. And I don't know who invented it, but I'm going to say the Israelis because anything that's good, they, they invented it in terms of water, but, it, but I don't think they did. I think GE invented it. And um, uh, so I needed a membrane system. Now, the way that membranes work is you, you force under pressure water, your raw water, into a membrane housing, and the membranes are strands, kind of think like um, five miles in the equipment that we use. It's about five miles of angel hair pasta. <laughs> and okay. each, strand, each strand is hollow all the way through. These are hollow fibers. But along the sides of them are, are pores that are in, in this particular example, ultrafiltration, are 0.02 microns or 20 nanometers in size. They're microscopic. That makes them smaller. Each pore is smaller than a bacteria or a virus or a cyst. So when the water that contains bacteria and viruses and, and other particulates is pushed at pressure against the sides of these fibers, the pure water gets through and comes out the hollow ends, but the outsides collect with all these particulates, all these uh, toxic um, uh, pieces of matter, microscopic pieces of matter. And that's how you get purified water. The, the one that most, the, the type of membrane that most people may be familiar with, or you've heard the phrase reverse osmosis or yeah. RO. What reverse osmosis does is it, and that's commonly used for desalination, you know, to, to take ocean water and so on. And it's, it's a great technology, but the problem is it's got a very high footprint, carbon footprint. The, the size of those pores are five nanometers instead of 20 nanometers. They're really, really small. And they're so small that when you push the water through it, even the essential electrolytes that are in the water get stripped out. And so what comes out of RO membranes is actually distilled water. In other words, water with absolutely nothing at all in it. 
And this is how bottled water works. This is how they make bottled water. But if you look at the labels of the closest bottled water near you, it'll say purified by RO. And then it'll say what we've added in artificially, they've added in calcium, magnesium, potassium, you know, the essential salts and minerals that, are, that make up the electrolytes that you must have in your body. Just drinking mm-hmm. distilled water is actually very harmful over the long term. But when you've got it with these essential electrolytes, voila, you've got healthy drinking water. And that's great. And the bottled water industry has done a terrific job in, you know, supplying enough access to safe drinking water. That's not where the problem is. The problem is the poor can't afford it. I mean, it's kind of insane that, you know, you and I, we're in the U.S., and most of our water that's coming out of the tap, Flint, albeit not included, um, is perfectly safe to drink, and it's really well, you know, well-produced water. In the San Francisco Bay Area, it's perfect water. Um, but yet we still go and we buy single-use bottles, and we do this insane kabuki dance that we have to have this bottled water because we're assured of its purity and so on. And we're willing to plunk down a dollar fifty, two dollars, three dollars, four dollars for, you know, half a liter or a liter. I mean it's real insanity. And then we're just polluting the planet with these single use bottles and and so it goes. Well the poor can't don't have that luxury. So they're stuck with whatever is in front of them. Right. So many questions because uh, I'm thinking, was it San Francisco that had outlawed bottled water? Uh, at least the, the the local government they couldn't use bottled water recent in recent yeah, years. Yeah, actually, yeah, actually, it just happened uh, this year at SFO, the uh, the big airport. You can't they they you couldn't at the concession sell bottled water in single use bottles, so um, they must be served in aluminum, so like aluminum bottles. Mm-hmm. Um, which are still throw away, but they're easier to uh, recycle. Or, um, or they have drinking fountains, and they have these awesome drinking fountains. Remember drinking fountains when we were kids? I don't <laughs> wow. Know, uh, maybe, maybe you don't remember, but, but I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I just turned – this is my Medicare year, dude. So, you know, I remember <laughs> way back, way back, uh, there were drinking fountains everywhere, and that's how you get your water. This concept of the single-use bottle that you – you, you chug down your throat and then throw away and they right. only 5% ever get recycled because the carbon right. footprint to recycle them is insane. I mean, the whole thing's nuts. The more, right. the more you get into the bottled water industry and the, and the insanity of it all, um, you know, the more it's, you know, you realize that, man, if we don't make some big fundamental changes, you know, we're, 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 we're kind of doomed, you know, even in this country. So are people pl- um, plotting to take away your marketing card because you should be happy of the great marketing efforts to get people to drink bottled water? Yeah, you know, I'm, I am very impressed <laughs> with the – well, you know, it's one of those – like in, the, in, my, in my book, I talk about marketing superstars. And, uh, you know, um, you've you got to admire, you know, the marketing balls that some of these companies have, like – I think the best example to me that I talk about is Fiji water, you know, that comes in the square bottles. Yes. You know which bottles I'm talking about? And they come yes. from the island of Fiji. Is it Fuji or Fiji? <laughs> I always get it confused. Anyway, um, this, is, this is insanity in its truest form. There mm-hmm. is a, uh, an aquifer 
and and Fiji water says that proudly no human hands touch this water. Well, good. That's that's good. That's a good start. And a factory was built many years ago over this aquifer for the exclusive purpose of bottling it. And they bottle it into these square bottles that they buy from China. Hmm. And they bottle this aquifer water and then ship it. It's only for export. So the Fijians have to get their water when it rains. That's the only chance they can get water that they can drink. It's when it rains. So the water from this aquifer, they're not allowed to get it. So this water where the empty bottles come from China, they get filled up on the island of Fiji. They get put on ships, steamships, that go to the port of San Francisco. And from there, they're put on trucks all over the world distributing this. I mean, like what? And, and it's just, you know, if that's not as insane um, as, as it sounds, then you have a situation where um, the Fiji owners decided to have their ad agency create, this is maybe four or five years ago, create an ad campaign. And it, they took an ad out, a full page ad in the USA Today, and they had a picture of the Fiji water. And the question, the big question, a big point type was, is our water actually, does our water actually come from Fiji? And then it says, well, yeah, it doesn't come from Cincinnati. So, so the head of the Cincinnati water utility was really miffed about this. And he had a, he had a sample of the Cincinnati municipal water tested along with a bottle of the Fiji water. And okay. he put in, he put in a page ad in USA Day, Today that showed the comparison of what was in both waters. The Fiji water had arsenic in it. It had oh. you know, all sorts of you know, particulates and compared to the, to the purified water from the water treatment plant in Cincinnati, there were no more Fiji ads. You never saw any more Fiji ads after that. Oh, wow. <laughs> so wow. This, this, this incredible, you know, just, you know, continuous scam that's going on with the bottle industry. I mean, Coca-Cola makes more money out of selling Dasani bottles and then the 20 other labels that they sell it under than they do out of selling Coca-Cola. So it's, yeah. it's not going to go away for a long time. But, um, but the fact of the matter is the rural poor, and that's what we focus in on, um, would have to spend a third to a half of what they earn every single day to get a bottle of water. You know, they're at about $1.50 to $2 a day, and they just can't afford, you know, bottled water in their country. And, and so we wanted to rectify that. And so what we do is we put in water purification plants using equipment that I found after vetting it for a year in uh, Colorado. It's made in Colorado. And we ship these systems. These are clean tech, green tech systems. They're solar powered um, and with a wind turbine. And they work 365 days a year. And they'll produce 20,000 liters a day of purified water. It's got its own pump. It's got its own um, uh, uh, battery array. And uh, it's got its own backflush computer, which, which, which automatically cleans the uh, membranes you know, as they start to build up from various toxins. Um, it backflushes it at the back. And when those toxins are exposed to the air, they die out because they're waterborne toxins. And these are systems that, um, 
that literally 10,000 people a day can get two liters of safe drinking water every single day virtually for the rest of their life. I love it. I love it. So, John, are you familiar with the artist Akon? Uh, Akon, yeah, the rap artist, yeah. Yeah, so do you know his story with Africa? Uh, you know, no, I don't, and I'd love to be able to make contact with him because I think he's a very charitable fellow. Yeah, and that, that's why I wanted to bring him up because uh, it made me think when you said I didn't want a straw on the earth, uh, the first thing I thought about was um, before I went to Dominican Republic, I had an offer to go to Ghana for two years with the Peace Corps, and they were oh, telling wow. us they were telling us that you know for it's going to be a challenge for because you're going to be there two years, you can't come home, but you're gonna you know I want to change the world you know when you first graduate, and they kind of yeah. look at you like well. Um, you know, that's cute and all. We'll give you this nice T-shirt when you leave, and then we're going to kind of go back to our own lives. <laughs> so right. that's the yeah. first thing I thought about with the straw on the earth because Akon's story is, you know, he was a rapper or what have you, but he took his money and his grandmother, I, I think it's Kenya, or I think it's Kenya. And so his grandma lives in Kenya. He's like, you know, Grandma, I got a house here in Jersey, whatever. She's like, I grew my whole life was here. So he couldn't get her to leave, and he's like, they did, the whole community, like 30,000 people didn't have electricity. Well, yeah. he went to, to you know, the government, like, hey, what does it take? And then they said, I don't know, for a small number, $100 million. And he said, okay. <laughs> and like two days later, he comes back with $100 million. And they were oh like, uh, we didn't think you were going to bring it. Like, this starts wars because you're talking about solar energy versus gas. And yeah. it's a long story to ask you about uh, the political environment that you're going in disrupting what they're currently doing or what they had gotten by with without any, yeah. you know, oversight. So what, what, yeah. what was your dealings? Well, I'll tell you, you know, all these different countries that we go to, I mean, we've been to uh, northern, northern Thailand and the Hill Tribe villages to the Philippines to Haiti to uh, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Kenya, uh, Tanzania, um, Nepal, all these different places that we go to, each place is completely different. But there's one universal truth. And the best, the best microcosm of what this universal truth is, is in Puerto Rico, where we've got six systems in Puerto Rico since after the uh, hurricane. And, and it is this. Puerto Rico... Um, I was literally there the day that I left one newly uh, 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 installed power pole. I'm sorry, a, 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 a new, a new line of, of uh, power poles and, and lines were, were put in by Florida light and power while I was there. The day that I left a tree, one tree falls on the power pole, you know, falls onto the lines. The entire Island was out of electricity for 24 oh. hours. Wow. This, so, so Puerto Rico is a great microcosm of what's wrong with the, with, with the way that we attack infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and Akon's impulses are laudable. I mean, how can you not say that's magnificent? Completely the wrong thing to do. <laughs> but, but thank you for stepping up, right? But the mm -hmm. problem is, the way that we must address water and power issues is we need to do them community by community so that these big, huge grids 
of power and water are not vulnerable to mother mm-hmm. nature, to terrorism, to hackers, to, you know, it's really not necessary anymore. Technology has come to the, to the point now that you can put in solar farms and microgrids and certainly, as, as I've been explaining, um, many municipal water systems, you can do this community by community by community where if there's an issue, you've got backup, you've got ways to be able to do workarounds and you're not, you know, you're not affecting millions and millions and millions of people all at the same time. And this is where um, the lane that I'm in, which is, which is this community by community empowerment and self, self-reliance lane. This is where I think all places rich and poor are going to be going at, at, you know, at some point. I mean, Elon Musk gets it right because he, you know, he knew that he couldn't, have uh, electric vehicles until he put in the infrastructure where mm-hmm. those electric vehicles, you know, were, you know, he didn't want them reliant on some sort of nationwide, like the electric equivalent of gas stations. So he put in his own, you know, and um, that started a whole cottage industries of companies coming up with home-based versions at your home. Uh, I mean, pretty much now, a family, if you really wanted to, you put in a Tesla Powerwall and a, and a charger, and you put in Tesla uh, 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 solar panels on your roof. I mean, you're, you're an island right there. You're, right. You've got everything that you need, right? And, and I think that's, that's you know, where we're going. We're headed towards that way. It'll be a while. But the rural poor most definitely – needs that. So um, I'll give you a great example. We're, we're going to um, India in, um, in a couple of weeks, around Christmas week. We're going to go to India, and we're going to go up to the headwaters of the Ganga River, the Ganges River. And we're talking about um, working with a, a, a group of people that, that, where we want to put in a water plant that can produce water at the headwa- headwaters of the Ganges River River before it gets polluted. It's up towards the Nepal border. And we're going to purify this water in a very large plant using membranes, probably 50 to 100 of these membrane systems, and do about a million liters a day of water. That'll go into glass bottles, like liter-sized glass bottles, and it'll be marketed um, by the poor throughout India. So that's one thing that we're going to start talking about. But there's lots of different ways using water in innovative, interesting ways, that particular plant would be completely off-grid. It's going to take a farm. We're going to put a farm in of about a 1,000 solar panels, and that'll power all the pumps and everything that we need in order to bring the water from the Ganges River into the purification system and operate these membranes where we can come out with perfect water with electrolytes intact and all the um, any any um, toxins removed and bottle that water and sell it throughout India. India is absolutely thirsty everywhere you go. I, mm. I, I was in Delhi at the Shangri-La Hotel. This is the nicest hotel in Shangri-La. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's expensive by India standards, about $300, but it's like an $800 hotel anyplace else in the world. And you cannot drink the water out of your sink in your restroom. There's a big sign, don't drink this water in your, in your bathroom. 
Like, mm-hmm. like what? You know, this is, this is what everybody, rich or poor, is faced with in many of these countries throughout the world. Mm-hmm. You're, you're giving me flashbacks because when I first came back from Dominican Republic, you know, friends wanted to take me out for drinks, and they were like, what do you want? What do you want, man? We're buying. And I was like, um, water. <laughs> yeah. That's all I was yeah. interested in drinking. So you're absolutely God forbid right. you use their ice, you know. Oh, yeah, no ice, zero ice. <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful of that. By the way, yeah. so, so the last installation we did was in July, and yeah. it was in the Maasai Mara. And the Maasai Mara is in Kenya. And um, mm. if you know anything about the Maasai, they're, they're an ancient um, culture, nomadic culture, and they go back to the 15th century. And uh, Nilithic, uh, meaning they, they, they come from the Nile River, actually, and, they, and they're uh, you know, way back then. And they settled around um, uh, Kenya and also in Tanzania, in the Serengeti. Um, but the Mara is a special place. This is where um, the great migration happens every July. And that's why we go every July. <laughs> and the Maasai women since the 15th century have been responsible, as in many cultures, for gathering the water. Mm-hmm. And the way that they have to gather the waters, they have to go into the riverbed. And during the dry season, um, what you'll see is a lot of these boreholes created by elephants. The elephants will go into the dry riverbed. They'll stomp the ground with one of their feet, and then they'll use their tusks to smooth it out, and it goes pretty deep. And when it rains, it fills up with water. Well, that mm. water is for the elephants. But when, it was, when it's, when it's um, uh, near where the people are, and particularly the Maasai, the people are competing with the animals for whatever water mm-hmm. is available. Mm-hmm. And so we were there a year ago, and we were on some game drives after doing work in another part of Kenya. And I had 25 people with us. And so the Maasai were our guides. And a woman had just been trampled by an elephant, you know, because she went in with a bucket into one of these boreholes that are in the riverbed. She pulled out some water and out of the bush came, came an elephant pissed off and just trampled her to death. And then down the river, two children at the same point two Maasai children were dragged off by lions. So it became a very serious wake-up call. And the Maasai men, these two Maasai men who are, who are our hosts and they're the elders, they said, John, what do we have to do to get our water issue uh, resolved here? And I said, well, um, one guy's name is Prince. He's not a prince, but it, that's his nickname. Uh, I said, Prince, what you have to do, we'll, we'll solve the issue for you. There's about 10,000 Maasai in this area. It's an area called Talik, Kenya. I said, there's two conditions. One is, we'll put in a water plant for you. We'll raise all the money and put it in for you. But you have to sell the water. And he said, oh, I like that idea. What do you mean? Well, you know, if you sell the water at X amount, which is half the price of what the going rate is in this, in this region, you'll make about 100000 U.S. dollars each year. So he said, well, we like that. Okay, that's wonderful. And I said, well, with this, you'll be self-reliant. A lot of your essential social services, you'll be earning it. He, he said, well, what's the second condition? I said, okay, the second condition um, is going to cause you to have to have some meetings. And it is mm-hmm. that the entire water enterprise must be run by the women. The men oh, have yeah. to step away. 
because the right. men would decide on any of that money, they'd buy a cow or several cows, mm-hmm. hundreds of cows. Um, but the essential social services, things like nutrition, things like clothing, like schools, like, like uh, medicines, these things that they need, um, women are the better uh, deciders on that. So they have to be in complete charge of that. So they, they, they said, okay, we'll get back to you on that. And they convened um, all 20 clans, that, the elders of all the 20 clans that make up these 10,000 people. And they talked about, if we do this, um, we'll have water for everybody. We'll have plenty of water and the women will be in charge of it. And we won't have any more deaths and we won't be competing. And then they started to talk about, isn't it ironic that the Maasai are, are expected to keep the, the bison and the rhino and the elephants from going extinct? They're the protectors of the wildlife. And isn't it ironic that the Maasai themselves are at risk of going extinct? And why? It's because women in our society are marginalized. They have no power. They have this ungodly task of, of fetching water and making, you know, the, the houses, the crawls in, in the little villages, you know, the, the crawls are made out of basically cow manure. Um, that, that's their two main jobs. And then of course, cooking and everything else. And the men, you know, they're herders and they're guards and they're, they're the protectors of the wildlife, but the women aren't full and equal partners. So this was the first time where this happened. And in July, this last July, we installed a full water plant. It cost us about $60,000. We did a 650 foot borehole. So it went very, very deep. It's creating enough water every single day. It's about 23,000 liters an hour. And the purification plant is processing 20,000 liters a day. That, that water goes into five gallon bottles and the, the women there's five women that operate this, this business. They hire the men, which I love, to distribute these five-gallon bottles throughout the Mara, and they're on track to earn $100,000 in, uh, in one year um, uh, with, with, with water that's purified that the base camps need because they don't have a system like that. And, uh, and now they're even franchising this, and we're going back this next July to put in a second one about 30 miles away. Nice. Very nice. Congratulations on that, for real. That's an awesome story. Well, and it's really it's wonderful to see these heroic women step up and, and take on something that's very historic to them. Sure, sure. And so is this, like, uh, what do you call it, proof positive that you take back these success stories to a foundation like water.org and say, you don't need this straw on the earth anymore. We have a newer 2.0 working model that they can emulate and grow this even more. Okay. So now we're getting into another chapter in my book, which is the, the dark underbelly of the nonprofit world. I call Mm. it the charity industrial complex. Okay. Uh, You will never ever see anything more rancorous except for perhaps Congress today (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, where there is no sharing, there is no collaboration. There is very little of it, very little of it. Even in my beloved... uh, Is it tongue-in-cheek to say kumbaya? 
<laughs> it is. It's 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 like you you have to be able to say kumbaya while rolling your eyes. Um, uh, but but Rotary has a difficult time with it too, to tell you the truth. Um, although it it collaborates very well with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, uh, only with the with the synchronicity of those two organizations are we getting so very very close to eradicating a disease. Only the second time a disease has been eradicated on Earth. Can you believe that? Smallpox was the first. Polio will be the second. I think there was only 12 new cases this year of polio. I mean, it's just, you know, most people that are under 40 saying, what the hell is polio in the U.S., you know? But when right. you go to India, you see, you see people that were affected by polio. They're called crawlers. They can't even sit in a wheelchair because they're so mangled. And, and it's, a, it's a debilitating disease. It's awful. And it had a stranglehold on the U.S. until about 20, 25 years ago when Rotary and the WHO and the CDC got involved. And then Bill and Melinda Gates came in later, maybe about five or six years, maybe seven or eight years ago, and pledged to match dollar for dollar every bit of money that, that Rotary was making. But other than that, you won't see a lot of collaboration between uh, charities. Part of the problem is that everybody's chasing after the same donor dollar. Mm -hmm. and, and, and here's the issue. The issue is that last year, 2018, a half a trillion dollars was given to charity by Americans throughout the world. A half a trillion. Now, now what percentage and I, I don't have the answer to this, but intuitively you know this, what, what the percentage might be. What mm -hmm. percentage of those dollars went to something that produced self-reliance, that wow. created, um, uh, that instead of just extending their dependence and extending generational poverty, that it actually mm -hmm. helped to, um, to uh, elevate not just women, but all people that are poor into a position that they could claim their place in their middle class basically in one or two years. I mean, do right. you think it's 1% or 2%? I mean, it's probably something like that. I know, I know very little programs that do that. And so, um, you know, I don't want to bash water.org or charity water or others, but, but primarily their model is to put in water points. Here's the other thing, the problem with water points and the way most of them are, Okay, you put in a water point, and then the women are walking five miles with water on their heads. Mm -hmm. So what did you really accomplish? Hmm. Our model is you create a distribution system. You deliver family-sized bottles to the hut, to the school. You take the women off the road where they're vulnerable to rape and getting beaten up and getting their money stolen and where they can't go to school and they can't have a business because they're spending their entire day walking with water on their heads. So we're trying to solve several issues at once. And so this is not the model of the typical water NGOs at all. This is not what they do and not what they're interested in. So is it uh, kind of like, uh, let's use the parallel with Elon Musk, like, who are you guys? Who is this John guy? They're uh, flashing the pan, and then they'll slowly come your way like he has a sustainable model. Well, that's what I'm hoping. I mean, we've got, um, you know, I just started doing these, this enterprise 
situation in the last two years. The first five years, I was, it was all about proof of concept of the equipment, of the plants. Um, you know, can it actually do what it's saying to do? Can we, can, do we have benchmarks that show, um, especially in a closed village where we can track these kinds of things, do we have evidence of improved health just because they're now having access to safe drinking water? And the answer is yes, um, just mm-hmm. tremendous results. Um, because, you know, you're, you're, you know if, if you believe what the WHO says, which is half of all the hospital beds in the world, half of them are occupied by people with waterborne disease, mm. right? And it could be everything from uh, GI issues to stones. I, I, was, I was at a, ho- a hospital in Nepal where, where we were about to put in a system, and I was talking to the hospital administrator, and he brought me to the pre-op room where they had 12 people waiting in pre-op to go into an operation. And eight of those 12 people were getting stones removed. Mm. You know, you ever had a stone? Have you ever passed a stone? Like no, a, I just remember like the gallstone. Seinfeld episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember I that too. <laughs> you can get gallstones, you know, uh, or, or stones. And what stones are basically are um, uh, crystallized cholesterol. And when you mm-hmm. don't drink enough water or by contrast, your, your, your method of hydrating is Coca-Cola because in a lot right. of places, Coca-Cola is cheaper, but it's sugary, so it's actually dehydrating. So mm-hmm. when you're in a state of dehydration, uh, these stones grow and grow and grow until you can't pass them and you've got to get them surgically removed. Eight out of the 12 people in pre-op, this is a snapshot uh, in Nepal, were there to get stones removed. And none of them drink enough water. You have to drink enough water to be able to pass the stones before they get too big, right? right. So, so these kinds of water-related issues, WHO says half the hospital beds are filled with, uh, filled with people with these issues, which is just astounding. So, so if, you, if you buy into what the WHO knows to be true, then you have to say that um, water, it starts with water. Everything that we're doing, absolutely everything that we have to do in the developing world, but hell, in the, in the first world too, um, yeah. has to start with water and, and it has to be affordable. It has to be perfect. You know, this concept of just putting a well in, and these are most of the, most of the wells in are very shallow wells. They last maybe three or four years, if you're lucky. The water table shifts or you know, because they're shallow wells or a cotter pin is missing or whatever. That's why 40 to 60% are inoperable at any given time. Okay. Uh, and that's why people have to walk such distances to get to it. Well, there's no guarantee that that water is like the water you and I are drinking. They're not of that quality. So really, we're not really solving much in the conventional wisdom of the ways to solve problems of water for the, especially for the rural poor. And there has been improvement in certain markers in the millennial goals, which were uh, 2000 to 2015. Remember the millennial goals? Oh yeah. And, and, and as it, as it relates to water, there was one metric that I was always interested in. And that was how many children under the age of five are dying because of diarrheal disease every day. And at that Mm. point, at the beginning of 2000, it was about 4,400 children 
under the age of five every single day would die of diarrheal disease, which frankly was coming from their water. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 15 years when it was measured again, that number got cut in half to about anywhere between 1,800 to 2,200. Children will die today, tomorrow, the next day because of diarrheal disease. So the good news is that the millennial goals really focused our attention to solve the issue or at least cut it in half, cut that Mm -hmm. metric in half. Wonderful. That's great news. But then when you look into it a little bit deeper, all of the improvement, 100% of the improvement was in the urban areas where infrastructure Mm -hmm. had been slowly uh, you know, and access was being slowly improved. And frankly, the bottled water industry helped, helped that improvement a lot. But in the rural communities, there was no improvement. And so the rural communities seem to be slipping even further backwards because access and, and price, and it's just impossible for them to enjoy the same kind of, of um, improvement. And mm-hmm. so still today, the bad news is 1,800 to 2,000 children under the age of five will die from waterborne disease. That's like taking 11 or 12 jumbo jets, filling them up with children under the age of five and having 11 or 12 of them crash to the earth in a fiery ball every single day. And, and yet because it's such a chronic issue, pardon the pun, it's kind of a drip, drip, drip issue, right? Um, Nobody pays attention to it. And we pay attention to the most stupid, inane issues on this earth instead of what's killing, you know, 1,800, 2,000 children under the age of five, which can easily be fixed. And so my challenge to other NGOs that are really interested in solving the problem is abandon these stupid technologies that really don't uh, provide a sustainable answer and refocus on empowering the poor you know, in Mexico, as an example, 40% of the bottled water is owned by four multinational companies, mm-hmm. Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, <laughs> Dannon, and Nestle. So mm-hmm. they're selling water that the poor can't afford. So yep. our thing is, hey, there ought to be a big five. And the fifth member of the big, of the big five is the poor. Let's, let's engage them to be able to profit on the sale of water selling it at half the price of the big four where all that money goes back to their own social services and they become self-reliant. This is our model. This is our formula and nobody is waking up to it. And it's because the charity nonprofit industry or complex has blinders on and they can only see what's in front of them and any kind of innovation or expansion or new ways of thinking is threatening to their being able to attract a a donor base. And we're just getting started. I mean, we are just getting started, but you know, we want to get to get to the point where we're putting in a thousand water plants a year, not just the five or six or seven or eight that we've been doing in this project so far. Right. Yeah. I mean, you should definitely be commended and you're getting the word out for sure. And I wanted to ask you, since you're a Silicon Valley guy, maybe you can connect the dots for me here. So you're talking about self-reliance when you, you build this infrastructure and now they're making money and you know, now uh, they can afford certain things. And I read 
earlier this year, I believe it was in Wired, that uh, at the beginning of the podcast, you were talking about outsourcing to India and Thailand and those places. But recently, I've heard that Silicon Valley companies are outsourcing to Africa for you know, GPS uh, coordinates and things like that. Are you seeing that? And, and if so, are those in the areas that you guys are building the water infrastructure or is it a direct result of your, your workings? Well, there's certain things that, that um, Silicon Valley provides, um, uh, especially in knowledge. But, you know, there's certain countries, like I got to hand it to Kenya. First of all, Kenya was be ahead of the curve before even the United States was in terms of mobile pay. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. Yes. They, they, yes. <laughs> they've had this system called M-Pesa. Well, you were in the Peace Corps, so you probably heard about it a lot because M-Pesa is the gold standard for mobile pay. You know, this was a, this was a system that um, a very uh, Elon Musk type in the financial sector in Kenya um, was the uh, CEO of a company called Safaricom. And that was the telephone, the, basically the telephone company of Kenya. And as mobile phones were starting to come online, it was becoming clear that with mobile phones, everybody could have a phone. That right. also meant that everybody had a phone account. So they were paying their phone bills. Um, and even people, millions and millions of people who didn't even have a bank account, right, were going to uh, be able to pay their, they had to pay their phone bill. So there mm -hmm. were kiosks set up that Safaricom had that allowed people to pay their phone bill. And then this visionary CEO said, hey, look at, you know, why not buy your strawberries at market? Why not buy water? Why not buy coffee? Why not buy all your, all your needs and just charge it on your phone bill? In other words, mm -hmm. Safaricom set up this thing called M-Pesa, which was this mobile pay platform. And it's now, you can't, you can't literally uh, stand in the middle of a street um, either a dirt street or an asphalt street and turn one degree 360 times and not see the word M-Pesa someplace. It's a whole mm -hmm. um, cottage industry where people recharge their accounts and, you know, people bring in cash or, or whatever they have to do and M-Pesa and now there's, there's others and M-Pesa has expanded into some other African countries. And so, this is we. This is where we want to go eventually. We want to go to a to a place where people can get their water in a cashless system, where where they don't have to pull Kenyan shillings out of their pocket, and then you don't have a situation where the distributors can mysteriously, you know, <laughs> pocket some of it themselves and so on. You know, with things like blockchain you know, where mm -hmm. um, the transactions can go up to a blockchain and every transaction is transparent um, and you have, you know, great re reconciliation of where you have millions and millions of transactions. Um, this is where we want to go. I mean, eventually I want to be able to come into my office and look on a screen and see the entire earth and see yellow, uh, 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 red, yellow, and green dots indicating where mm -hmm. the water plants are and, you know, hopefully there won't be too many red dots, but I'll, I'll know, you know, um, the condition of all the plants that we put. That's, that's my dream. I mean, we have 30 now, and once we have 1,000, you know, having a mobile pay system and having a, having a, 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 you know, a global network to be able to test and look at the health of the systems, that's where we want to go.
Absolutely. And, and then one last question that, I mean, this hour flew by. I wish I, I thought it was like 720 it's at the top of the hour. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I want to ask you, because uh, this is probably peop- a lot of people that listen to this podcast is, you know, uh, something happened in their life and, the, you know, the uh, defining moment and now they're doing something, they're doing their life's work. And one of it is if they left corporate, they wanted to travel. And I, and I saw in some of your videos, some of those people, they've gotten that bug of traveling out and maybe it was more of that cruise stuff that you were experiencing, but now they want to do the human effort. So how do you solicit the uh, volunteer volunteerism for people to come along or be a part of uh, H2 Open Doors? Absolutely. At our website, h2opendoors.org, there's a tab that says participate. And you can see the latest registration forms for the various trips that we do. And we love for people to join us and go on these trips where we're doing the Africa trips. We call it service, soul, and safari. Um, You know, we we do our service work for a few days. We immerse ourselves in the culture, and then we go do something wild and crazy that's, uh, that that particular region is best known for. And so I invite everybody to check out h2opendoors.org and to look on Amazon or Audible for a long walk on a dry road, and it'll give you an idea of what these expeditions are like. Are there any plans, I'm thinking, especially Silicon Valley again, where you know there's the backlash of, constantly taking photos of being at a restaurant with, you know, your cheese sandwich, what have you, whereas it seemed to be more apropos, right, to do up, uh, social media updates of being out on the safaris or being a part of the service. Are there any plans to have a social media arm for H2 Open Doors? Well, you know, for now we've been doing heavy on Facebook and Instagram, and so every day we, we, uh, we, um, we put new content, a lot of new content. But it's something that I'd love to talk with you further about because your, your website and the, just the whole idea of intrinsic motivation is like we're, we're soul brothers here. I mean, I think that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. And so maybe we could develop some ideas together along those lines. I like it. I like it. Yes, uh, great minds definitely think alike. Uh, it was definitely a pleasure. You have been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza again. John, thank you so much. Um, Is there any additional information that you want to leave before we part? Just facebook.com slash h2opendoors or h2opendoors.org, and let's start a dialogue with your listeners. And I can't wait to to, uh, continue our dialogue uh, even further going forward. I look forward to it. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Still there?